As we start this series, I want to lay a foundation for how we're going to approach the book of Romans. Now, most of us tend to think of history, life, and the Bible linearly, but the Jewish people didn't think as linearly or step-by-step step as we might think. See, every sentence that Paul is going to speak in this letter leads to his next point and is expertly crafted. And so it makes sense that we would often approach Romans line by line or verse by verse. However, you're going to notice at times that I'm going to seemingly skip over parts or you're going to ask, well, wait, why didn't you go over that part? And then in the coming weeks, you'll notice I've gone back over or touched on something from the previous chapter, but it makes a similar point. And so the reason for this, that we're going through it in this way, in a less linear way, is that Paul and much of the apostles did not think so linearly, but they thought cyclically. Now, if you were around for our series through Judges and 1 Samuel, you might remember that it highlights a cycle of the Israelites and us as the church and individuals following God closely. But then we tend to turn away from him towards sin and we receive the consequences of our sin. So we cry out to God and he delivers us. And when he's done that, we often start to follow him closely again, but then we fall away and the cycle repeats. And we see this throughout the book of Judges and the books of Kings. And in Romans, Paul is going to put the cross, the good news that Jesus has rescued us from sin in the center of everything. It's a bit of a different cycle. But what he's going to do is he's going to then explain it this central thing of the cross and the work of Jesus from one angle and explain the implications of it. And then he's going to respond to criticisms and then come back around and explain it from another angle and so on. He's going to do that pretty much all the way through chapters one through eight, or you can maybe even argue one through 11. And if you're a fan of the Bible project, they showcase this with the book of first John, that it's, it's sort of this very cyclical or he's kind of going back and forth, almost like a, like a top or a pendulum kind of, circling around one thing or kind of going back and forth and back and forth in this circular, not quite circular, but almost like making an infinity sort of pattern with it. And that's very true of the book of First John, but also I'm convinced with the book of Romans as well. Now, a good example of this is that Paul will often address a crowd of people who thought that they could go on sinning now that they had God's grace. And so multiple times through the book of Romans, he's going to address this criticism, but he's going to look at it from different angles. So here's just a few examples. In Romans 3, 8, and 3.31, he says, Why not say, as some slanderously claim and claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. And in verse 31, he says, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And again, in 6.1, he says, What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? So essentially, he's saying the same thing, or he's kind of bringing up this rebuttal multiple times in multiple places, but he'll do so with slightly different arguments or from a slightly different angle. And so instead of looking at it linearly or having to bring it up every time, we're going to divide this up into some main angles from which he views the gospel and its implications. And notice that each pass Paul makes around the cross is also a pass he will make through the rest of the Bible and Jesus' teachings. All of this is to show that the cross is central to the Bible and the good news of Jesus. So we're going to see that Romans is the master key that it unlocks an understanding of the Bible. Now, many moons ago, I, I had a conversation with a friend when I was memorizing and going through Romans. And he asked, if I could only read one, one book from the Bible, which would I choose? Romans or one of the Gospels? And I ended up thinking about it, but I chose the Gospels, Matthew in particular. I just, you know, really like that one at the time, like all the Old Testament references. And he was shocked because he would have chose Romans. And he said, how can you read the Gospels without the proper lens, which is the book of Romans? 
Or at least that was his logic. And I'll give him this. The book of Romans is crucial to the Christian faith. It is the master key to unlocking the life and teachings of Jesus and also the Hebrew Bible, which is pointing towards him. And so this is where we're going to pick up with our text and go somewhat linearly, but also see some of the cyclical nature. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience which comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So as we start this text, what stands out to me is that Paul is doing this in continuity with the Great Commission. You know, Matthew 28, at the end, Jesus came to them, disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. You know, I have missed this for so long, where Jesus says, teaching them to obey. You know, we often swing so far away from obedience language because we don't want to be legalistic like the Pharisees. And yet Paul here is clearly differentiating himself from his old life as a Pharisee when he used to call people to obedience for obedience sake or to follow the law in the strictest ways. But now he's calling them to obey everything he has taught us. But it's not an obedience that comes from fear that God will punish you or that you'll disappoint him, but one that comes as a natural response to faith in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that God has already rescued us and the obedience as a response to grace is not obedience then grace. When Jesus rose from the dead, he walked with two of his disciples at the end of Luke's gospel on the road to Emmaus and explained how the Hebrew Bible was all pointing to him in the resurrection. And what Paul is doing here is likely giving us that master key that Jesus gave them to unlock the scriptures. He's going to use Abraham and Adam as examples in the chapters to come. But this is all likely teaching that has been passed down to Paul by the apostles and by direct revelation. So he'll argue that Abraham believed God, was declared righteous, and then was given the covenant of circumcision. Now that might not sound groundbreaking to us, but that was a revolutionary idea that transformed Christianity from a Jewish school of thought into a robust system of theology. Now sometimes I hear a problematic argument about Pauline Christianity versus the teachings of Jesus. And through my time studying and memorizing Romans, I found that Paul is actually following a train of thought passed down from Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus that all the law and prophets were leading to him and the cross and the resurrection. Now throughout this series, you will notice that I referenced Jesus' teaching and the other apostles' teaching and Paul's other letters to show that the differences we see are just Paul's unique voice, making the same arguments Jesus and the other apostles made. Now, earlier we looked at how Paul is continuing a train of thought to disciple people towards the obedience which comes from faith, just as Jesus commissioned us to teach them to obey everything he taught us. But Paul doesn't make this argument in Romans, but in a similar way, we don't see God throughout the Bible sort of saying, if you obey this, then I'll do blank. For example, with the Ten Commandments, God doesn't say, if you obey this, then I'll rescue you from Egypt. He says, basically, he gives them grace and delivers them from Egypt, and then comes the obedience from faith as a result of grace. And here's where this gets personal. Some of us are still trying to earn God's love and grace. And if you get anything out of this whole series, 
It is to deeply and truly know that the good news that God's grace is already available to you by the work of Jesus and that our natural response is obedience from our faith in him. So he goes on to say, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, that I might reap a harvest among you as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You know, I'm so inspired by this, and yet I struggle with it sometimes, because I am often ashamed of the gospel. You know, when I meet new people for the first time, the question I inevitably get asked, at least in the United States, is, what do you do for a living? Sometimes I find myself dreading it because I don't want to make the conversation awkward when they find out I'm a pastor. You know, I used to love it because it was such an easy opening to share my faith. And sometimes people are just asking me questions about it. What I've come to realize is that a huge roadblock for many of us is that we are ashamed of the gospel because we no longer see it as good news. And I don't see the people I meet daily as being lost in their sin. I don't see their salvation and new life in Jesus as so good that it is urgent. And this series will reshape the way you see the gospel as good news. And I hope that as a result, it will move us in faith to obey the call to spread the good news of Jesus. Now, this next section may give us a clue why it's so difficult for our modern context and the ancient one to see the gospel as good news. Before we get into it, the bridge between the section we just read and the one we're about to read is the word righteousness. It is absolutely crucial to understanding what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In Greek, it's the word dikaiosune, at least that's more or less the, the noun form, and the verb form is dikaio. You usually see dikaiosune translated as righteousness, and the word dikaio as justify or something like that, which you might think, well, that's kind of strange because they seem like pretty similar words. Well, they pretty much are the same word, just in noun and verb form. Chances are your Bible doesn't really use the word make righteous as it could be translated for dikaio, but justify. So anytime you see the word justify, it is that same word, Dikaio, and it's important for us to see it in that light as well. That is one and the same for Paul, righteousness and justification. Our cultural understanding of righteousness is different than how the people understood it in the Greco-Roman and Jewish worlds. The Romans were actually a very religious people. They were convinced that the great peace of their time, often called the Pax Romana or sometimes Pax Deorum, meaning the peace from the gods, was due to, the, to their religious observance. Now, similar to how some people heretically blame crime or terrorism or economic problems on taking prayer out of school, the Romans held the same view and were convinced that proper worship and honor of the Roman gods led them, led the Roman gods to bless Rome with peace and military strength. And you may, and you know who threatened that by the way? It was Jews and the emerging Christians. They offended the Roman gods with their so-called impiety and atheism as the Romans called it. They, they called them atheists more or less because they denied or were atheistic towards the Roman gods. But Jews and Christians were adamant that there is only one God and they would not sacrifice to the emperor or his gods. And this is an increasingly difficult concept for many of us, that righteousness, which is just a churchy word that we use these days for right living, justice, goodness, morality, and so on, 
that it could be anything other than loving our neighbor. You know, there's been a ton of, ton of research in the fields of moral psychology on this, that our idea of what it means to be a good person is largely horizontal, meaning it relates to other people. And our cultural morality or righteousness is defined as someone not hurting another person or treating another person unfairly. And if that's, the, if that's it, then, well, most of what you're doing is probably moral in that sense. However, the moral framework we see in the Bible and outside the Western world is that righteousness is also something vertical. In other words, you can be moral or immoral even if you are not hurting someone because it goes against your creator's intentions. See, we've completely cut God and the spiritual framework all around us out of the picture and our righteousness is only what we do in relationship with others, not with God. It reminds me of something I learned about a famous painting called The Opening of the Fifth Seal by El Greco. It's a painting of John in Revelation, looking up at all the angels and heavenly creatures swirling around, opening the seals around him as Revelation describes. However, today we only have the lower half of the painting. You can look it up on Google. The upper half was chopped off and lost. And apparently there was some trend where modernist collectors, at least to my knowledge, would alter famous paintings in this way. It's analogous to what we have done with our worldview. See, we've chopped off the top, all the heavenly things, and only kept the lower portion for ourselves. And yet we'll see in Romans in the coming weeks that Paul is very aware of the realities in the spiritual realm and the dimension that we are blind to. Our worldview has been flattened, and a fuller understanding of both our horizontal righteousness, meaning among other people, loving our neighbor, and our vertical right relationship with God that we've largely lopped off, that that will make this book and the gospel come alive like never before for you. So he goes on to say, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth with their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. Instead, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So here Paul is saying and laying out what's been labeled as natural theology. Later in chapter two, he's actually going to clarify this further saying, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing them and at other times defending them. In chapter one and two, Paul is arguing in no uncertain terms that the nature and glory of God are clearly visible in nature and though the image and through the image of God in us. It's why just about every human civilization is some form of religion. Paul is also saying that while not all of them have been given the revelation that Israel has been given, they still are given the image of God and some sort of natural law. But however, instead of acknowledging God, we are prone to create our own counterfeit gods. In Paul's time and long before that, people made idols which they prayed to. And now we largely do the same thing, but it's with celebrities or others that we glorify. And going to the deep end of the pool, it's largely the condition of the human heart to seek God. Yet it's been corrupted by our own sin nature, or as Romans would call it, the flesh towards self-worship. Freud and other psychologists and sociologists have a fascinating perspective on it that I think proves Paul, Paul's point. They theorize that we create religion in a cycle to reinforce our own values 
that we pass on to our children, who then adopt it and adapt it for their own kids and so on, not realizing that we are essentially worshiping ourselves. And here's the interesting thing about Christianity and the gospel. It is by far the most unique. It goes against the grain of what we want as human beings. Because if it were up to me, God would just get over our sins and require nothing of us. He'd just be this moral and therapeutic, wish-granting genie. Yet as we'll see throughout the series, God is who he is, not who we make him out to be. It's why when Moses asks who God is at the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. To Paul's point, we reject the things about God we don't like, and we replace it with what we like. We flip it and try to create God in our image rather than being conformed to his image. So then he tells us this, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and became inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Therefore, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, this is an early part of the book that is a stumbling block in our cultural climate. I've done an in-depth analysis on what the Bible says on sexuality, and it's, it's just too much to fit into this message to do it justice. So you're more than welcome to check it out you know, on the rest of the podcast episodes on sexuality. But one thing to note is that Paul is not just trying to pick on the LGBTQ community as we know it. See, pederasty was commonplace in Rome, which is the practice where older men would initiate young boys into manhood by assuming a dominant sexual role with them. Even philosophers like Plato and Aristotle would regularly talk about it in their writings as a normal accepted practice. There was also temple prostitution where women would sit outside the temple of Aphrodite until someone would come by and pay her for sex to worship the gods. There were some cults that engaged in orgies and all kinds of sexual promiscuity. And Paul is making the connection from idolatry to pagan sexual worship to pederasty and finally to the long list of depravity that Paul lists at the end. He's showing that they're all interconnected. Notice that three times it says God gave them over. The Greek word there is paradidomi, which is also used of Judas betraying or handing Jesus over to the Romans. And notice that it says three times that we exchange the glory of God, that God is handing them over to the consequences of their idolatry, which is our broken sexual framework, inventing ways of doing evil and general depravity. See, it's very similar to what happens in the cycle of Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The people want idols and want a king, want to rebel and exchange the true God for counterfeit ones. So God hands them over to the consequences of that. And sometimes the worst thing for us is for God to give us exactly what we want. Often when someone wants to demonize something, they just say, well, this is exactly what happened in 1984. Or this is, you know, exactly what the fascists want or something. And the problem with that is that we think the worst thing for us is for someone to say we can't do something or that we must do something. One of my favorite books, Amusing Ourselves to Death, makes the case that it's not 1984 that, we're, that we may be heading towards, but Brave New World. Now, in Aldous Huxley's classic book, The Real Tyranny of Brave New World comes, when people, comes from people wanting drugs and pills that will just make them happy and pacified. See, it's not Big Brother that we have to worry about. It is our own desires. Our culture has been seeking to bring God down towards our level and raise ourselves up to his level in the sense of the Tower of Babel. 
As Paul saw back then, as we see now, the worst punishment God can give us is to do exactly what we want rather than what he knows is best for us. Now, this section does not end at the end of chapter one, by the way. And in chapter two, he continues this thought saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person, each person according to what he has done. So he ends chapter 1 talking about how there's all these people who, get, who are given over into all that sin, which also shows us our vertical relationship with God overflows into our horizontal relationships with others. And he ends specifically not only doing them, but approving of those who practice them. And he continues on and makes this important connection that just because you don't approve of these things doesn't mean you're any better because we are often steeped in the same things. And some of us in, you know, may have strayed far from God or in the middle of one of those consequences. And some of us are hypocritical in thinking that we're somehow better, even though we still struggle. And he goes on in chapter two to list some of the ways that we obey God, but turn around and do the exact opposite. He quotes from the Old Testament saying, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, those of us who brag about the law, but then dishonor God by breaking it. And some of us understand how seriously God takes other people's sins but need to realize how seriously he takes our own hypocrisy. Notice that Paul says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank God that he cares enough about us to rescue us from the pit of our own sinful making. That is the good news of the gospel. In Romans 12, Paul is going to switch from the rule of faith that we've largely been, or that we'll be going through in the first half of this. And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you. And then goes on describe what the obedience which comes from faith looks like. In these next few weeks, we are going to steep and marinate ourselves in God's kindness and his mercy, which leads us to repentance, and then examine what kind of obedience faith in him will lead to.